0: Good evening. Well let's stand and worship and adore our God this evening. Oh come.
1: Thank you.
2: Merry Christmas. You guys go ahead and grab your seats. There's a couple of things I want to bring to your attention that we got coming up. And I sure I'm sure many of you both here and, and watching online are wondering, well what are we gonna do when snow mageddon, ice mageddon hits? Well, we're probably gonna have church. That's the plan. So we're gonna meet on Christmas Eve at three thirty and five thirty. And we're we're Lord willing that uh, all this stuff is going to come in, be done on Friday, melt on Saturday, and we're going to be ready to go. If it changes, you need to pay attention to um, Facebook, email, we will send out any changes. Plan B is we may not do the 3.30 service and just do the 5.30 service get a little bit more time so that things will melt off a little bit. Yeah, and so, but if it's, uh, you know, if, if, if Frosty decides to get angry at us, then uh, we, we want to be safe, because we can handle snow in our parking lot, but ice out there is not a good thing, so we want to we take care of that. And then on Sunday, we're going to meet at 1045 for a great celebration on Christmas Day, and, and so we want to invite you to come. We're going to have food and snacks and all kinds of uh, fun stuff, both Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. And then the youth sledding trip is going to be on the 27th. They only have 30 spaces available for, for transportation. So we want to encourage you, if you've got kids, get them signed up. New Year's Day, we will do one family service, 1045. And we will bring in the new year. Let we take a look at Acts 19. And then next Gen will be picking up on the 8th. But we got a special treat for you tonight. Tonight is the last night for Awanas for 2022. And the, and the Awana kids are going to be having... party, So we've invited them as special guests to come in and give us a Christmas parade. So let's give them a round of applause as our kids come in. Pay attention to all the characters. And then also the kids in costume. We've got some wise men, we've got some angels, modern Christians, all that. Good job. Come on in, guys. They're going to circle around and they're actually going to join us as we sing Silent Night. So the kids will come around up here. They're going to sing Silent Night. I'm going to move this out of the way.
1: Try to get them over
2: here in the front. job. Give the kids a round of applause. All right, kids, let's go ahead. and You got a Christmas party you get to go to. Whoop. Shepherd down.
0: sung a few Christmas carols. We, again, as Pastor Kerry said, encourage you to come this weekend. We'll be seeing a lot more of those. For now, we're going to turn our attention as we're going to be studying John chapter 13. And it uh, begins with Jesus being a servant. And so let's stand and worship and be amazed at our marvelous Savior this evening. I stand amazed in the presence
1: of Jesus the Master. From the darkness I called your name into darkness. Great, How great, how great, how great is your love. How great, how great, how great is your love. How great, how great, how great, how great is your love for us. There has never been. There will never be A God like you A love so true There has never been And there will never be A God like you A love so true There has never been And there will never be A God like you A love so true there has never been and there will never be a God like you. A love so true. How great is your love for us? From the heights of heaven, you step down to earth in a perfection, gave your life for us. We are amazed, we stand in awe. For we have been changed by the power of the cross.
0: Lord, we are here before your throne this evening. We have come to adore you, to praise your name that is worthy of praise. Thank you for stepping down from heaven as a baby. We are here amazed. We stand in awe. and It's because of the cross that we are changed. As we look into your face this evening, we're reminded of how incredible you truly are, how indescribable you are,
1: From the heights of heights to the depths of the sea. and change. Indescribable, uncontainable, you place the stars in the sky, and you know them by name. You are amazing God, incomparable, unchangeable, you see the depths of my heart, and you love me the same, you are amazing.
0: to that phrase, we say yes and amen. You are amazing. We
2: love you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. If you would, open up your Bibles to John chapter 13. As we enter into John's account, writing the farewell message and and begins this farewell cycle where Jesus is preparing for the cross. This is during his Passion Week. Palm Sunday has taken place. He is now there on Thursday at the Lord's Supper, what we would call the Lord's Supper, and, and looking at the cross. It's amazing. We celebrate Christmas coming up and we we look at Jesus being born and now we're looking at him preparing to die his short time on earth because he's fulfilling his mission. And part of the mission is to be a servant. We're going to see tonight this, this concept of foot washing where Jesus really comes to serve and, and serve the disciples. In John thirteen thirty four, Jesus would say, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you must also love one another. Consider the tension that is going to be wrapped up in our text today. On one hand, he is washing the disciples' feet. These are the last words that he's going to be having with them as he's looking at the cross, which is not very far in the future for him. Yet there is an antagonist named Judas sitting at the table, and he's going to wash his feet. Sitting in the place of honor. The night in which this takes place is called Monday Thursday, Latin, for mandatum. We call it Monday Thursday or mandatum because it is where Jesus gives us this commandment that we're to love one another. If we were to look at a mandate for a Christ follower in this world today, we find it here in verse 34. To love one another in the same way... That Christ has loved you. It's an amazing example of how to love those that are going to betray you. As he washes the feet. Imagine. Imagine the tension, the heart that's going through Jesus as as he's sitting at this table. And and the disciples are there, clueless about what's going to happen. And here's Judas in in the seat of honor. I often wonder how it must have felt for Jesus to pick up the foot of Judas and wash it. For him to give him that place. This passage is full of tension. And it's full of love. And it's a model for us that tells us that we can love those that the world would declare unlovable. As he demonstrates his selfless love. So let's dive right in. Chapter 13 verses 1 through 11. It says, Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And during supper, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from the supper, laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. And then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. And so he came to Simon Peter and he said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I do you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. And Jesus answered and said, If I don't wash you, wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, "Well, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, he who's been bathed needs only to wash his feet was completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him, for he was for this reason, and he said, "Not all of you." So we look at this, this dinner, this, this meal that is there. And in this, we see Jesus' last act of private love for his disciples. Now, he has been with these guys, handpicked, for three years. And they, they've eaten together, they, they've they traveled together, they've slept in the same areas under the trees and the gardens and all of these things, teaching them the miracles to do and teaching them the teachings and going everywhere from, from Caesarea Philippi in the north and Banya's and teaching him Mount of Beatitudes and along the Sea of Galilee and walking on the water and all of those things all the way down into Jerusalem and it's all come to this. They're there at the Passover feast, seated around this table. And it says the hour had come. Jesus knew that his time had come. And he also knew that Satan was betraying. That is is a present active. It means it was in the process of doing this. This this time where Jesus would depart from one place to another. this time of his passing that had come. And it was the foot washing event that would take place before the meal. You see when you would come into a house typically the servant of the house would wash the feet because they didn't have shoes like what we have. They were all open-toed sandals and and so when you traveled around, you walked everywhere and your feet would get dirty. But when you were to eat, well, you would you would want to be clean and so the the lowest servant of the house Typically would wash the feet, but because they didn't have a servant of the house, the room was rented and borrowed and and, and set up, most probably John Mark's house. Then it would be one of the disciples should have done it. This would be common practice, common etiquette to be able to wash the feet. In this Passover meal. And Jesus was preparing to leave. This would be his last meal. You would think he'd sit back and let them serve him. That he would be the guest of honor. But no. He takes on the form of a servant to wash the feet. His departure would be excruciating. Comes from the word cross. I think it's imperative for us to see that he loved them in verse 1. He loved them to the end. That there was that there was this love that carried him all the way forward to the end. What is the end? The end would be the cross, the sacrificial death that Jesus would, would give as the expression of his love. John fifteen thirteen says this greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends greatest act of love. Jesus is going to lay down his life for the disciples whom he loved but for all of us. There's no limit to the love of Christ and there's no limit to the service of Jesus. There is no there is no well I'm not going to do that that's beneath me. He modeled love by washing feet. He showed that he would love by going to the cross. But again, imagine what's going on in his heart. He was loving all of them to the end. Even Judas? Yes. Knowing that the devil had put into Judas's heart the, the heart of betrayal. Now, question. Are there difficult people in this world to love? Maybe one or two. I want you to think about right now the person that you would never wash the feet of. But to really love is to wash those feet. Who would you say no to? I think if Jesus ever had a reason to pass over a pair of feet, it would be Judas. But he doesn't. The other thing that I think is important to understand is this that while the, it was put into Judas's heart to betray him, this inspiration, Judas was a willing partner. He had a choice. Now imagine the tension that's going on in the heart of Judas at this time. In his mind, he's got this idea, I'm going to betray Jesus, I'm going to get my money cut and run. Because after all, it's not working out like I thought it would. And Jesus comes around the table To wash your feet. Imagine the tension. What are you doing? You're washing my feet? If you only knew what was in my heart right now. And the internal action. But it wasn't enough for Judas to change his mind. Jesus was demonstrating love to Judas. Judas. In the face of Satan. He's demonstrating love to the nth degree. Now question. The text says Jesus has all authority from the Father. Right? That's what it says. He has all authority from the Father. Right? All things, verse 3, were put into his hands. Came, came forth from God and would we'll go back. Could Jesus could have, in his divinity, just said, you know what, I'm done. Turn Judas into a puff of smoke. And by which, removing the threat, could he have outed him in front of all the disciples and foiled the plot? Sure he could have. Could he have gone to the disciples and said, excuse me for a minute, I have to go into another dimension and go wipe out the devil. He had all authority, but he doesn't. Why was it that he did not exercise all of that authority at that moment and stayed on course to the cross for you and I, for our salvation? Because had he not gone to the cross and paid the price for our sins, there would be no hope for us, no hope for mankind. And he was facing all of that. The other tension that is in here, that's embedded in this, is this question. Why does God allow evil to exist when he knows that evil is going to destroy? There's this tension because God is allowing evil to exist in this room, in the person of Judas, in order to do what? Accomplish God's greater will. He allowed the evil to exist in Judas, in the betrayal, for the greater purpose. To glorify his father and be obedient to what the father called him to do. Because God the father said, you will go to earth. You will add to yourself humanity. You will die across death and you will rise again and conquer sin and death. And you will be the substitute for mankind's sin. Does that mean I have to allow Judas to betray me? Yep. Do I have to allow these evil people, these wicked people to torture me? Yep. Thereby God allows bad things to happen in order to accomplish the greater will. And Jesus expressed that love, verses 3 to 5. With all of this knowledge, with everything that's there, how did he express his love? It's interesting. It says that he got up from the supper, verse 4, laid aside his garments and taking a towel and girded himself. You can't miss the picture that is in this. Because that's exactly what Jesus did when he left heaven. When he left heaven, he came to earth and took on the form of the servant. And humbled himself. Adding to himself this humanity. And you think about this, this is the Creator of the world, the Son of God, grasping unwashed feet. who knows where those feet have been, and he's washing them. It's the lowest thing that you could do, and he does it he he humbled himself to this 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 place in in The times of Jesus, the students of the rabbis were expected to do the menial work for the teacher. They should have been washing his feet. But he was washing theirs. In Luke 22, verse 27, it says, For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? It is not the one who reclines at the table, but I am among you, note, as the one who serves the greatest in the kingdom of God is the servant of who? All. The servant of all. The idea that Jesus has has separated himself and the laying aside these garments, Philippians 2, 6-8 says this. As Paul writes to the church of, of Philippi, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself... Taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearances of man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Washing feet, dying as a substitute, dying like a criminal. For you and I. Amazing to humble himself and take on this form. Why? So we would know what true love looks like. So that we would know what sacrificial love looks like. What does sacrificial love look like? It looks like the mother who stays up all night caring for the sick child. Cleaning up time and time and time again. It is, it is what does love look like? Love looks like the spouse that is caring for their spouse who can't care for themselves. What does love look like? It is, it is serving those that have no house or food and giving to them what they need. Setting aside your personal agenda to be able to give to other people. That's what love looks like. And you can go on and on and on. Jesus was giving to his disciples one last lesson. You want to know what love looks like? It's washing the feet of others. And this should stick in their mind. In Mark 9.35, Jesus would say, as he called the disciples to him, If anyone wants to be first, he should be last and the servant of all. But the problem is, like most of us, Peter misunderstood the actions. In, in verses 6 through 9, Peter jumps up. Peter, bless his heart, Peter has a chronic disease. you know what that chronic disease is? Foot and mouth disease. Peter has the chronic disease of foot and mouth. He opens his mouth and he inserts his foot. Often. So Jesus is coming around the table. As they're sitting around this table. And and, and they're, again, they're sitting around this table. Now it's a U-shaped table. Uh, when we take a look at at this idea, we think of tables as being, you know, this large, long table. If you see Michelangelo's, you know, The Last Supper, they've got a really long table and everybody's there. And, and then you've got Jesus there with some kind of like halo over him. And off to his shoulder is like, you know, the devil-faced Judas. And, and, no, it's not like that. It was a U-shaped table. And it wasn't much more than a couple feet off the ground. And you would lean on pillows and you would lean on your left side and eat with your right. And you'd lean up against others with pillows and your feet would be out away from the table. Now you know why you want to wash feet. Because your foot is in somebody else's face. And you would eat with your right hand because there was only certain things that you did in biblical times with your left hand. Considered unclean. And the way the table would be seated in this U shaped format is the first person here would be the guest of honor. The next person would be the host. And then the next person. And they would be set in order based on priority. So Judas would have been first, then Jesus, then John. We know this based on this conversation that will be had. And then all of the disciples are all around this U shaped table. Peter is sitting straight across. Why? Because Peter got the lesson early about the first last. So the closest to be with Jesus is actually taking the last position. And it was always better to take the last position and, and, and you know, in his mind, and, and Jesus says it's better to take the last position than if you go to a meal. Why? Because if you're the last position, then you're honored when the host says to the guy in the last position, oh, wait a minute, no, 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 you come up here. I think Peter was fishing for compliments. So we got Judas, Jesus, John, Peter, the other order we don't know. So it says that when he came to Peter, which meant that he had hit everybody on the table circuit, washed all of their feet. Peter's still sitting in last position. Peter jumps up and says, no, Lord, you're not going to wash my feet. Why? Think about this. You've washed everybody else's feet and they were okay with that. But I'm going to be Peter. Not going to wash my feet. I'm going to be that example. He says... Peter, if I don't wash your feet, you'll have nothing to do with me. And, and, and that got to him. It was a huge teaching moment within this. You'll have no part of me. There is no compromise in the means and manner by which we will have a relationship with Jesus. Jesus sets what that is. And that relationship is important. Unless the Lamb of God takes away you the sins that you have, you will not have a relationship with Him. Jesus is implying in this teaching moment, unless I wash your feet, we're not going to have anything to do with you. Well, then Peter says, well, wash all of me. Right? Give me a shower. No, 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 Peter. You're, you're missing the point. You're messing up the illustration once again. Let's just do the feet, Okay? Now, he makes a very clear statement, verses 10 and 11. That only those who have been cleansed have the eternal inheritance that's there. And it has two parts. The one that has been washed does not need to be cleansed again. But then he says, not all of you are clean because he knew of Jesus. Now question, did he wash the feet of Judas? Sure he did. Why? Why? Because he was demonstrating love. But did washing feet make him holy? No, it's an illustration within this. It didn't make him clean or holy, but it was this act of love. And he loved to the end with the heart of service. So then we ask the question, how does Jesus make us clean? In 1 John chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, says this, If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet we walk in darkness, walk meaning the way we conduct our life, we lie and do not practice the truth. And if we walk in the light as he is himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. It's interesting because that word cleanses is an active word. It, is, it, it has a beginning and it continues to act. So as we are having fellowship with Jesus, we are experiencing that cleansing work of Calvary. How are we washed? Through the cross. Through the blood. And it, and it begins at salvation and continues to work. And then how else are we washed? Through the word. Ephesians 5, 27 Paul would write, so that he, being Jesus, might sanctify her, being the church, having cleansed her by the washing of the water of the word, that he might present himself uh, the church with all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she would be holy and blameless. Talking about the church being his bride. What does he do? He washes you. He cleans you of all of your sin so that he can present to himself one who is pure, spotless, without wrinkle. That's how Jesus sees you. Clean. Cleansed. And Jesus is demonstrating this this real point that there are two kinds of people, even in this presence. There are those that are clean. And even within the disciples, there is one still that is unclean. Judas. Question: Does everybody go to church? Is it does is everybody that goes to church a Christian? No, not by clear definition. They're not all Christ-like. Not everybody that goes to church is saved. Going to church does not make you a Christian. It puts you in a place where you can hear the Word of God, where you can be washed by the Word of God. But it's only the inward transformation that happens with the Word of God. As we go to the cross and we cast our sins upon him. We know that he died for these sins. Jesus is the only one that can wash you and make you clean. That's his point within this. And so within this, he he goes through this whole process with Peter and recognizes that there is still one there that is not completely clean. So, verses 12 12 to 20 says this, So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, do you know what I've done to you? (laughs) In my sanctified imagination, I I think there's like, you know, this silence because they're not going to say a word. You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If then the Lord and the teacher wash your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen, and it is that the scriptures may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. And from now on, I'm telling you it before it comes to pass so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am a me name of God. Truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I sent receives me and he who receives me receives him who sent me. I love the fact that Jesus explains his own object lesson. We don't have to guess at it. He tells us what it really means. He explains the purpose of of the foot washing. He comes back to the table, gathers up his garments, interprets his actions, basically saying, I am the teacher and I am the Lord. And and within that, he goes into this conversation. In, In verse 14, he says, If then the Lord and the teacher wash your feet, First class condition, and he did. You also ought to wash one another's feet. This is the teacher's model. If the teacher did this, you should do this. Okay? Is there an option, as a Christ follower, to not wash the feet of others, or not to serve people? No. No. If you are a Christ follower, which is going to be Christ like, if you are a Christ follower, then you must follow Christ in every aspect of what he has done and demonstrated, which means serve people. Only serve the people you like. No. Serve the people that have something against you. I'll be nice to them if they're nice to me. No. Which is hard. You know, within this, you think about this. If I am the Lord and the teacher, and he is, then wash the feet. Now, this is not a sacrament of the church. Come Sunday when we come back after Christmas, we are not going to start the foot washing ministry. It's not a sacrament. It's not a mandate to foot wash in church. Although, it is something super cool when you have an intimate group of people that you are studying God's Word and you want to demonstrate love. I can tell you this from having done it. I've done it with youth. We've done it on youth missions. I've done it on, on retreats. It is super, super awkward. And it's very humbling to do that. You always want to announce ahead of time you're going to do a foot-washing too, <laughs> Because you want, you don't want somebody to be um, weirded out by it. But it is not a sacrament, but just a model. Paul later, in his letter to Timothy, would regard it as an action of love by the widows within the church. Notice, in 1 Timothy 5.10, says this. And this was something that the widows would do. Having a reputation for good works... And if she has brought up children, if she has shown hospitality to strangers, if she's washed the saints feet and if she's assisted those in distress and if she's devoted herself to every good work. Is he literally saying if you want to be a widow in the church and be on the payroll, you've got to wash the feet of them? No. He's saying the widows are going to serve the church. They're going to act in service. And in in, in, in even the lowest needs, whatever they might be. Then we have this divine maxim, truly, truly. The slave is not greater than his master. And, and within this, we think so many times, I'm exempt from serving. I've heard people say, and even in our congregation, I can't serve there because that is not my spiritual gifting. I'm not called to this. I'm waiting for God's calling to serve in the nursery. I can tell you this, that the day of the Lord's Supper, when Jesus washed the disciples' feet, He called you to serve. Whether it's in the nursery, or it's in Sunday school, or visiting the shut-ins, or whatever the case is, if there is a need within the body of Christ... You're called to serve. If there is a need within the community. You're called to serve. You're not above the master. And to follow him in humble service. And to obey truly, truly. We're not above Jesus. And if we say I'm not going to do this. Because I'm not called to do this. You're declaring yourself better than Jesus. If you know there's a need. Fill the need. And that and obedience to this maxim, notice, brings blessing. If, if we know that Jesus has taught us something, we are blessed if we do it. And we're not doing it for the other person. We're doing it for God. You think about it, what was, what was What was the whole blessing that was behind Jesus' ministry? To the Father. He was glorifying the Father because he called him to do this. To be able to serve within this. Now, within this, he also prepares them for something in the future. The betrayal. Notice in verse 18. I don't speak of all of you, the ones that I've chosen, but in Scripture, but that may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has been lifted up his heel against me. He explained part of this that Judas would be leaving and meeting. He would leave the meal shortly And he would go meet with the priests and the temple guards and arrange the betrayal of Jesus. Judas would leave the meal, go to them and say, Hey, look it. I know where he's going to be. He's going to be in the garden because he always goes to the garden of Gethsemane. I know this spot. Give me my money. And they gave him 30 pieces of silver. And within this... I'm puzzled with this because Judas is present while Jesus is speaking. He's hearing all of this. How deceived can one be when they turn their heart so hard against God? To even hear the truth about what you're about to do and not have it pierce your heart. If I was Judas and I had already had thought about all of these thoughts... I would have broke down. You got me. I'm done. But he stays the course. And Jesus quotes Psalm 41, 9. Even my close friend in whom I've trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. David wrote this about his betrayal of Ahithophel in 2 Samuel chapters 15 to 17. And you think about this. How weird that is. Lift up his heel. What does he really mean? In Near Eastern culture, if you were eating and reclining at the table and your feet were out there, you would pay special attention not to ever put your foot in the other guy's face. But if you did do that, you were showing him disgrace. You were just, you're not worth it. Have you ever heard the saying, give him the boot? Speak to the hand lifting up the heel The other thing I think it's interesting in here is Jesus says that I chose them all. Did Jesus chose choose Judas? Yes. He chooses he chose a betrayer. Did he know that he was going to be betrayed by Judas? Absolutely he did. And he chose them anyways. This is a challenge. In in John 6, 70, Jesus says, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Why? Because it was necessary and preordained that Judas would be the betrayer. As Hebrews would say, he's a vessel that was created unto dishonor within this. And you say, well, how does that work? I can tell you this, it's above my pay grade. But it was all for the glory of God. It was necessary. Did Judas have a chance to, to, to back out? Yes, he did. But he didn't. And there is this tension that exists between free will and, and divine sovereignty. That, that this, this preordination that God had towards Judas, yet Judas had this free will. And there's a tension that exists there. But it gives to us this, this statement that all of this happened. Notice in verse 19, so that you may believe that I am. That you may believe that I am God. Within this. And he says, truly, truly. Which again forms this same statement. Listen to me. Pay attention. The authentic Jesus is revealing himself as deity. To this group of twelve. Judas blows by. The disciples don't get it. Part of it is because they were natural men. They didn't get it. Verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you. The one who receives whomever I send receives me. And the one who receives me receives him who sent me. It all boils down to what you do with Jesus. Will you follow him or will you not follow him? There's a danger with apostasy. There's a danger when you turn your back on Jesus, as we'll see with Judas in this betrayal. Notice in verse 21, as we t- go through 21 through 30, he says, And then Jesus said this, and he became troubled in his spirit, and testified, he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, that one of you will betray me. The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. And there was reclining on the bosom of One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved. John never uses his name. He just uses that phrase. The one whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter gestured to him and said to him, Tell us, who is it whom he is speaking? And he, leaning back thus on Jesus' bosom, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, That is the one for whom I dip the morsel and give it to him. And so when he had dipped the morsel, he took it and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And after the morsel after the morsel Satan then entered into him therefore Jesus said to him what you do do quickly Now no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him for some were supposing because Judas had the money box that Jesus said to him go buy things that we need for the feast or else that he would should give some money to the poor so after receiving the morsel he went out immediately and it was night. So we see that Jesus is troubled. Again, this is, this is Jesus in his humanity. It breaks his heart. I washed his feet. He's been with me. Now I have to release him to go do this. Have you ever been troubled when you've had to release somebody out into the world? Maybe it is a prodigal child that had determined they don't want to be in your house. They're not turning around. They're not coming back. And you have to say to them, what you you do, go do. Jesus is gearing up to release Judas, to go do. and And it says that he was troubled in his spirit, agonized within these things. Jesus is not callous, and and within this he goes to him and and says, "Go do what you got to do." Judas thought he was fooling the twelve, and he was, but he wasn't fooling Jesus because you can't fool God, because God knows the heart of man. Psalm ninety five ten and eleven says, "For forty years I loathed this generation, and they were a people." Who err in their heart. And they don't know my ways. Therefore I sworn my anger. They shall truly not enter my rest. Why? Because God said to the first nation of Israel. That came out of Egypt. They're not going in. Why? Because I know their heart. And they're not believing. Jesus also knew the hearts of the religious leaders. Matthew 9. 4. And Jesus knowing their thoughts. Is why are you thinking in your hearts? Again. Imagine the tension. And just when you think that that okay I've got this, Jesus says, I know what's going on. Can you imagine if we lived in the reality that Jesus knows exactly everything that's going on in here? He knows. You can't fool him. You can fool everybody in the room, you can fool everybody in the church. But Jesus knows. He knows what's going on. And, and with this heart of human heart, he was broken hearted. He was broken hearted by rejection. Matthew twenty three thirty seven, Jerusalem, Jerusalem who kills the prophets and stones, those who were sent to her. How often I wanted to gather you as children the way a hen gathers her chicks under his wings. And you were not willing. Jesus said this as he looked over Jerusalem was weeping. breaks Jesus' heart when you turn your back on Him. It breaks His heart. So what does Jesus do? Call Judas out? No. He shows him love. He serves him once again. He says, now one of you are going to betray me. All the disciples are going, is it I? Is it I? Is it I? Because by this time they know that Jesus knows everything and they can't guess about it. Peter sit, motions over to John and says,
1: Ask him who it is.
2: John leaning there goes,
1: Okay.
2: Jesus, who is it? It's the guy I give the bread to. In Jewish culture, Near Eastern culture, everybody ate out of the same common bowl. Why? because it was believed that the same food that went into your body was the same food that went into my body from that, and we had fellowship. It was all designed by the same food that went in. Therefore, if your hand was unclean and you ate out of that bowl, now you make me unclean, and so that's why everybody would wash and do all these things. The dip that he would have dipped into was probably keroseth. It's a mixture of honey, apples, and walnuts that are all mixed together. It's part of the Passover meal. And so he would have taken some of the pita bread and dipped it in and given it to Judas. He's leaning and sitting and he takes his right hand and dips it and gives it to him. Seat of honor. Give him some. But it wasn't very noticeable to anybody but John And Judas, the one whom I dip this bread and give it to him, and he shows him honor within this. And I wonder, with all of this going on, was that still opportunity for Judas to change his mind? Why are you serving me? Why are you loving me? All of this is going on as Jesus is wrestling with the upcoming events. Within this. He knows the betrayals. They can't believe it. And they were confused. Matthew twenty-six, twenty-two says, being deeply grieved, each one of them said, Surely not I, Lord. Within this, Judas had fallen to a depraved mind, and a depraved mind will abandon the Lord. Paul would write to Timothy in 1 Timothy six, three through five. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and doesn't agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, with a doctrine conforming to godliness, notice, a different doctrine conforming to godliness. He's talking about people that we teaching in the church. He is conceited and understands nothing. But he has a morbid interest in controversial questions, disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, constant friction between men of depraved minds and depraved, deprived of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of great gain. In other words, they market the, the word of God. Avoid these people. Why? Because they determine that church is a place to make money. Judas, you're going to make money by selling out Jesus. And again, we have this conversation, Peter and John. Who is it? I often think about the challenge of the disciples. Is it I, Lord? What should have been the statement? It isn't me. But are we all at this place where we could potentially turn our back on God? Sure, it's a slippery slope. When we listen to the depravity of the world, when we listen to those that corrupt and, and adulterate the word of God. We cannot trust our heart. Jeremiah 17:9 says the heart is more deceitful than all else and is depravedly er, I'm sorry, desperately sick. Who can understand it? There are two conditions by which we all make decisions. Emotion Or truth. What happens when we make decisions based on emotion? We're going to be wrong. Because if emotions override truth, then it's going to be up and down and all over the place. But what happens if we make decisions based on truth? Truth will drive our emotions. Judas was making decisions based on emotions. Jesus, you disappoint me. There's no kingdom. I'm going to go get it someplace else. But he spent three years getting the truth. But he should have said, no, Jesus, you are the way, the truth, and the life. And even though I don't feel like things are turning out the way I want them to, I'm standing on the truth and not abandoning the truth. Our world today, especially in our churches, and many pulpits are abandoning the truth. And they're caving into emotions within this. And he showed love towards Judas, who was abandoning him. And he gave him, again, I I believe another opportunity, real privately, and has this conversation. I love the fact that Jesus does not publicize our sin. Can you imagine what it would be like? If Jesus said, okay, Holy Spirit, I want you to go down to church and I want you to give the, the, the word of knowledge to everybody so that everybody will know what everybody else's sin is. Would you like that? No. Jesus doesn't publicize. You think about this. Why? Because it's personal. and it's the personal conviction. You remember the, the, the woman that was caught in the act of adultery? Do you remember... They brought her forward to be stoned, put to death. Jesus confirmed. He says, you without sin cast the first stone. But you remember what Jesus did? He stooped down and he started drawing in the dirt. What did he do? We don't know. People will speculate. and say, wrote the names of the people, wrote the names of the adulterous relationships the people had with them. They have all these other ideas. The text doesn't tell us. But what he does say is very interesting. You who are without sin cast the first stone. Let that soak for a minute. And I'm going to just doodle. And it says, From the oldest to the youngest, they all left. And then Jesus looked at the woman and said, Woman, where are your accusers? She said, There are none. Neither do I accuse you. Go and what? Sin Sin no more. Did Jesus know her sin? Yes. Did He show love? Absolutely. And didn't broadcast that sin or slap her in the face with it. And we look at this, Jesus leaves room for this repentance. Judas chose poorly. He gets up from the table and He leaves. And He goes to go do what He needed to do. The disciples thought, well... He's just going to go buy some stuff for the feast or for the benevolence within this. What did Jesus do? Jesus says, you've chosen this way. Now I'm going to give you over to this sin. Is there a time when God gives us over to our sin? Yes, he will. You really want it. He'll give you over to it. Probably not going to like it. Romans chapter 1, verses 24 and 25. Therefore, God gave them over to the lust of their heart to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshiped this, and served the creature more rather than the Creator who was blessed forever. Amen. Does God give sinners over to their sin? Yes, He does. For a number of different reasons. One, to teach them not to sin. But two, God gives to them the freedom of choice. Judas chose to leave, and he did. But you can't miss the notation. It says, and he left, and John accounts for it immediately, and it was night. Night. Well, we already know it was night. What was John's point? Judas is leaving the light and going out where? To the darkness. To the darkness. And the light and darkness is a theme that John carries through. And within this, the conversation goes on. Judas is now out of the the picture. And John continues in the conversation in verses 31 to 38. Therefore, when he had gone, Judas, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified, and he is, in him... God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to you, the Jews, now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And by this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Peter said to him, Lord, why can't I follow you right now? I'll lay down my life for you, foot and mouth. And Jesus answered, he said, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. So Judas leaves the room, goes to betray him, and Jesus begins to, to make a statement where he says, now the Son of Man is glorified. Why? Because the betrayal has begun. Everything that had come to place needed to come in place, and the hour or the timing was here. If you remember in the wedding feast when Jesus was told to cat, turn water to wine, he told Mary, he says, my hour has not yet come. Well, now the hour is come. The time has come. As we've been studying in this Advent series, the fullness of time within this. And Jesus says, now the hour has come. John chapter 12, 23. In, in, in that evening, he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. What is the glorification? The glorification is the cross. The death, burial, and resurrection within this. Who's the Son of Man? Daniel seven thirteen says this, And I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a Son of Man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. Who's the Son of Man? Jesus. Daniel's account is a pre-incarnate condition of Jesus in heaven. Daniel saw the vision within this. And Jesus loved the Father. And he says, Father, I want to glorify you by doing everything you ask me to do. Including laying down my life. And he says in verse 31, if God is glorified, and he is, he's glorified in him. In John seventeen five, in Jesus' prayer. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had before you before the world began. What is the word glory? Doxa. The word doxa really implies this magnificence that is beyond measure. To glorify, to see in the fullness, the fullness of the Godhead. The God indivisible is being glorified because the Son is being obedient, obedient to the Father and all of the planets coming together. Do you realize from Genesis to Revelation, the whole Bible is about one thing our salvation. And it all comes down to a pinpoint. Where the plan of God for your salvation and redemption and mine is all brought to the cross. Where the love of God is broadcast and spread out. Where we can see it beyond measure. And we can say, thank you, God. And we can, we can honor Him. How do we honor Him? Well, until He takes us home, we love one another. How did the Son glorify the Father? He loved us. How do we glorify the Father? We love one another. In what way? Just like Jesus. If it means washing the feet or dying to self. As I said earlier, this is the mandate. Little children love one another. It is not a new commandment, but a new in kind. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18 says this. You shall not take vengeance nor bear a grudge against your sons or your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. That's an Old Testament law. But what Jesus says now is this is new in kind. Love your neighbor as yourself. Within this, this is a new standard and this witness that is full of love. Well, Peter, down in 36, suffers again from foot and mouth disease. He says, where are you going? He says, where I'm going, you can't follow. Why? Because I'm going to the cross. Only one person can die on the cross. There's only room for one on the cross. Peter, I'm going to the cross. You can't follow me. I'm going to the tomb to rise again. You can't follow me. Mm, But you will follow later because, according to history, we know that Peter was crucified by tradition. tells us that he was crucified upside down. He would die. And he would go to be with the Lord within this. But we also understand that Jesus was saying, Peter, don't be overconfident. Peter says, I'll lay down my life for you. Will you? Will you? Okay, Peter, here's a lesson. Tonight, before this rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. We'll see how that works. It's interesting. So many times we hold up animosity against Judas because he betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. But didn't Peter betray Jesus by denying knowing Him in the courtyard? We're all capable. But there is great love in restoration. And Jesus would show that great love. To Peter. He would show him that great love when he would meet with him. And and later on in John 20, he said, Peter, if you love me, go feed my sheep. And he would say it three times. Lord, you know I love you. Go feed my sheep. Three times. And it says Peter was grieved because Jesus said it three times. Why did Jesus say it three times? Because he denied him three times. He restored him. Unfortunately for Judas, because he took his own life, he didn't leave room for restoration. He determined his own end. I often wonder, and this is one of those questions that I've got for God, if Judas hadn't taken his life, would there have been room for forgiveness? And I believe there would have been. But Judas cut that opportunity short and died in his sins. Jesus prophesied of Peter's denial and prophesied of his death. We'll see Peter come back around later. We'll continue this conversation here in a couple weeks. Just as a reminder, there's no journey next week. So we'll pick up in January, John 14. Let's pray. God, I thank you. I thank you that you've given to us your truth. This powerful, powerful set of verses gives us a window into your unconditional love. Your patience, your kindness, your goodness, your gentleness, your heart of being a servant and how you modeled everything for our benefit. Lord, I would pray that we would learn these lessons well and that we would worship you because truly you are worthy to be praised. Lord, so many times in our lives we give up even on ourselves. But you never give up on us. Lord, I thank you that in your faithfulness you seek to restore us and have been restoring us. May we continue to do so. As we close out tonight, may we look into the eyes of Jesus. Behold your glory and worship you as our Savior and our Lord.
1: He who was before there was light Walked across the pages of time He who made every living thing Behold him He who heard humanity's cry Left his throne to wake as a child he became like the least of us. Behold Him, Jesus, Son of God Sinners and saints, healed the blind, the lost, and the lame. Even now he is in our midst. Behold him. He who chose a criminal's end, paid with blood to settle our debt, buried death as he rose to life. Behold Him, Jesus, Son of God, Messiah, the Lamb, of roaring O oh, be still and behold Him, Jesus, Alpha and Omega, our God, will
0: Christmas. Have a blessed Christmas. We'll hopefully
2: see you this weekend. Thanks for joining us in the study of God's Word with Pastor Carrie Wacker. We'd love to have you join us in person for worship each Sunday morning at 9 a.m. or 1045 A.M. We also meet Wednesday nights at 6 30 P.M.